Corinthians chapter 4. We're, today, we've been talking about growing, right? Uh, the, whole, the whole emphasis we've been looking at is James' exhortation uh, to growth. We've got one over here, too. Somebody needs one. Um, and uh, this is the whole thing that we've been after. And today, we're going to be looking at unhealthy conflict only produces destruction, not growth. Those are the two blanks. Destruction, not growth. Unhealthy conflict only produces destruction, not growth. It gives us heat, but no light. And uh, James has been telling us that real Christians are growing Christians, and Christians whose lives are filled with unhealthy conflict show they are not growing. Now, all conflict is not unhealthy conflict. This is something, uh, especially in Christian circles, really important for you to get a hold of. Because there's uh, kind of this feeling in Christian circles that, you know, if anybody kind of brings up the other side of something or anybody emphasizes a different direction or something like this, that that's not good. You know, we should all just be in lockstep, all uniform, just doing that. And that just is not true. As a matter of fact, the best results often happen in management teams and different things like that when you have healthy conflict. Healthy conflict means we uh, talk something through and we're looking for the best solution and, uh, and we, we, we just keep talking it through until finally a decision is made and we come up with the, what we feel uh, with good thought is the best solution. I always love to have people working with me on a team with me that are not just walking in lockstep, right? If you, you know, they, 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 you've heard them say about marriage before, you know, if you never argue, then one of you is unnecessary, right? Part of the, part of the, we have a need to, to have some conflicting thoughts there for us to come up with the best solution. But that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm not talking about healthy conflict. I'm talking about un healthy conflict. I can't help when I think of that but to think of a little excerpt from a book by um, Chuck Colson called The Body. And uh, he tells the story of some deacons who wanted to call a business meeting in the church to decide if they should keep Pastor Waite, that was the pastor's name. The church had basically split into two sides, those who were for the pastor and those who were against. The pastor was trying to avoid the meeting, so he was refusing to have it announced at church. And finally, the moment of conflict comes. Let me read to you from the book. This is what he says. So Pastor Waite is beginning the announcements in church. If anyone is visiting today, he began, please raise your hand and our ushers will come by and give you some information about Emmanuel Baptist Church. At that point, Frank Fowler got up from the front pew and strode up the stairs of the platform to the pulpit. Bending toward the microphone, he smoothed out a piece of paper and started to read. This is to announce a special congregational assembly for this afternoon to discuss Pastor Donald Witt. Suddenly, he could not be heard. The pastor's wife at the piano had begun pounding out, Have Thine Own Way, on the piano, and was immediately joined by Sharon Carson at, Carlson at the organ, drowning out the rest of Frank's message. Pastor Waite began singing loudly into his lapel microphone, and some of his supporters joined him. Before they could begin the second verse, Frank pulled the organ power cord from the wall and Brian McGuire shut the piano lid. Flora Waite beat on his arms for a minute and even lost her hat in the scuffle, but Brian held on. Then Ray Bryson got up and walked over to the pastor in the slow, deliberate way that one approaches an injured animal. 
The veins in Ray's neck were showing as the two men hissed under their breath at each other. After a minute, Ray appeared satisfied. He turned to go to his seat, but his feet got tangled in a microphone cord, and he fell down. There was an audible gasp from the congregation. Pastor Waite delayed for one brief moment before reaching to help him up, and it was long enough to convince everyone that uh, he had pushed Ray. Ray must have thought so too because he bounced to his feet and hit the pastor square in the nose with his fist. The lapel mic registered the impact. The pastor's wife screamed and ran to help her husband, but she never got close to him. Within an instant, a majority of the congregation converged on the communion table, punching or shoving. Many came down the center aisle to help break up the combatants, but remained to fight after their side began to fall behind in the skirmish. The melee soon spilled over to an open space beside the organ. Two tenors and a baritone jumped over the wooden railing of the choir loft and began exchanging punches with members from both sides of the aisle. This is a true story. Mary Dahl, the director of the Dorcas Society, threw a hymnal at one of the tenors, but the missile sailed high and wide and splashed down into the baptistry behind the choir. Sharon Carlson had given up on the organ and moved to the piano, where she tried to restore order by playing Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. Anna Fowler, Frank's wife, told her to return to her seat. When Ray Bryson's hook finally took the pastor down, someone grabbed the spring flower arrangement from the altar and threw it high in the air in Ray's direction. Water sprinkled everyone in the first two rows on the right side, and a visiting uh, Presbyterian experienced complete immersion when the vase shattered against the wall next to his seat. The fight ended when the police arrived on the scene. They restored order, took down names for the report they would file, and recommended that some of the men seek medical attention. Ray Bryson's hand was broken, and Mary Dahl's knitting needles had been confiscated. So finally they end up before a judge, a Jewish judge, and uh, he says to them, Wait sat down awkwardly as Goldstein continued. No charges will be pressed at this point, but I urge you to work this out within your own church. Your Jesus Christ may allow this sort of thing in his followers, but the Commonwealth of Massachusetts will not permit fistfights as a regular order of a church service. Wow. Why don't you just take a moment right now, if you have that little note paper with you, and just write somewhere on the edge, is there anybody in your life now that you're having what you think might be an unhealthy conflict with them? Is there anybody right now? Could be a roommate, could be somebody down the hall, could be a teacher, could be back home, you're getting ready to go home, many of you, for the break, and you have got somebody right now that you're having an unhealthy conflict conflict with. Just make, a, just make a note about that, would you? Let's look at some of the reasons that James says that conflicts like this can happen, okay? Reasons for an unhealthy conflict in your notes, number one. Unhealthy conflict flows from unsurrendered desires. Let's see what James says in chapter four. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
you do not have because you do not ask. That's the most powerful thing right there, that last little line. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. What is he talking about? Ask who? What he's talking about is the relationship, the person's relationship with God. The believer James is talking about has stopped talking to God about his desires. Why don't we ask God? If I have certain desires in my heart, he says, the source of your of your conflicts are this, uh, you know, are these pleasures, desires, these different things. He said, "Why don't we ask God?" And I think the reason we don't ask is because we're really not interested in God's opinion. We have our own opinion, uh, our own way of thinking about it. Similar to uh, the teenage boy who comes home and tells, asks his parents if it's okay if he stays overnight at a friend's house. He doesn't mention that there are going to be some girls overnight that are going to be staying overnight in the house too. He doesn't mention that because he really doesn't care or want his parents' opinion. You with me? He wants to say what's on, you know, basically get his way. So he's not asking. Many of us are like that with God. We're not asking. He says, you, you don't know, you don't have it right because you don't ask. You're not asking because you've already calculated in your mind and you've said, I'm not sure this is really what God is after. Therefore, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just not going to ask. I'm not going to open myself up to his way. There are three unsurrendered desires that cause arguments. And these are in your notes here. Number one, the first blank is power or control, the desire to be in control, the desire to not want to answer to anybody, the desire to not have to ask, the desire to not be dependent. This is, you see this, Satan said to Eve, when you eat of it, you will be like God. This is the thing he's appealing to in, in her. Um, uh, this, you know, and since I've become president of the school, I've seen this one a few times manifested in the lives of students, basically, the desire to be in control, the desire to not want to answer to anybody. Elam is a terrible place to come to if you haven't surrendered this thing. This is, this is a tough one right here because uh, if there's ever a place where uh, who's in charge is going to be questioned, this is, this is a big deal. But, you know, we've had couples, I, I, I think of one couple that we had um, that, uh, you know, uh, you know, a lot of times people think, because when, when a student gets disciplined or something happens, you, remember, you only ever hear the student side. You never hear our side of the issue. And the reason you never hear our side is because for us to tell you our side, we would have to say something bad about the student, which we refuse to do. Follow me? So when you, when you hear of a conflict or something that happens, remember you're always just hearing one side of the story. So in this, uh, this particular thing that happened some years ago, um, uh, the, uh, you know, this couple was uh, getting together and uh, they didn't want to follow our standards here on campus. And uh, so they went off campus and uh, got a, a motel room, you know, and and uh, woo, you know, uh, at a, so they they come back from that they come back from that experience, and of course, 
they're not feeling good, right? They're, not, they're feeling like, you know, and so they come and they talk to us. And, uh, and so we say, okay, uh, you know, okay, that's fine. You, know, you made a mistake. That, that happens. You know, so that's another thing. A lot of times when you hear about something, it appears to you from your angle like there was just something just immediately just happened. They were just, you know, this crushing sent home kind of discipline or something like that where there was no, there was no process involved. Let me just tell you right now, there is always a process involved. We never immediately do anything. And so... Uh, so, so they do this thing. So we say, okay, look, this is a, this is a, uh, this is not good. This is not good. So we want to put some breaks here on your relationship, right? We're going to put some limitations here on things. And uh, they just completely rejected every limitation that we put. They just basically said, we're not going to do what you ask us to do. They just, you know, we we want to be together and we're going to be fine and everything will be good and and just, you know, they just the desire to be in control, the desire not to want to answer to anybody, the desire to not have to ask, the desire to not be dependent. See, this is one of the unsurrendered things, right? One of the unsurrendered issues. And so they ended up, eventually we had to ask them to leave, right? This is just, uh, just happens. Unsur- another unsurrendered uh, P that we see here, an unsurrendered thing, is pleasure, hedonism. My pleasure is the main goal of life. My pleasure, you know, uh, that which feels good to me, a me-first attitude, uh, lust of the flesh, you know. Um, again, you know, in my time, I've learned lots of things since I became president of the school. You know, we had, uh, you know, couples that uh, they get together. They, I'm not even sure they really even like each other. But they've had a pattern of um, using sex in their lives as a way of um, soothing themselves, you know, a way of uh, comforting themselves and this kind of thing. So they, they get together uh, with this other person, and, uh, and, and they're, you know, I mean, the, the stupid, you know, parking in cars in the church parking lot and making out and doing this and doing that and getting involved sexually with each other and all kinds of stuff. And, of course, it comes out. It's just, you know, when we, you know, when you lived the way we lived together, right, here, there is not much that really stays hidden, right? It, things, things come out. It just comes out. So it, 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 it comes out. But they have this unsurrendered, they don't even like each other, I don't think. But they have this unsurrendered thing in their lives that basically, hey, look, this is, this is how I please myself. This is how I satisfy myself. This is how I make myself, uh, it's, it's my, my personal anesthesia is sexual involvement, you know. And, uh, and so I'm just going to give myself over to that. And, uh, and they don't want to hear anything from anybody. It's unsurrendered, unsurrendered issue. And then the third thing that we see uh, that he speaks, James speaks to in the passage is possessions. The desires to have, the love of things. The unsurrendered desire is like a time bomb that must be diffused. And, and possessions and pleasure and the desire for power or control. These, when these things are unsurrendered, they're like in your life, they're like a, um, 
they're, they're, it's, it, it's like it, we, we have a landmine in your life, just wet, ready to go off. It's just waiting for the right thing to hit it because of this unyielded place. James is speaking to us here, and he just says, hey, look, you've got some, you got some issues here that are going to lead to conflict. They're going to lead to major problems. There's going to be some kind of battle that's going to happen over this. Um, some kind of thing, you know, possessions. I think of possessions, you know, I think, I, I, I probably would say, maybe I've never seen anything have a more destructive impact on students' lives than the, for example, the, the possession of a car. Now, you would think, possession of a car, what's the problem with a car, having a car? Well, it's not really the car that's the problem. It's the car payment that is the problem, right? And because a person has prioritized their freedom and their ability to jump in that car and go where they want to go and do what they want to do when they want to do it, you know, because they have prioritized that in a way, they end up running short on money for school. They end up in all kinds of, having all kinds of problems that develop, all kinds of difficulties. All because of their unwillingness to say, you know what, uh, I got my food here, I got everything here. I don't need a car. I can get along without a car. If I need to go someplace, I can use a bus. I can, you know, ride a bike. I can, I can get bums from somebody else who's got a legitimate reason to have a car. I, I can, but I don't really, you know, but that absolute wanting to, you know, maybe all three together, you know, the, 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 the wanting to be in control, wanting to have the opportunity for the pleasures that they want, the freedoms that they want, the possession, the, you know, the car, it just knocks people out. I didn't have a car. The whole uh, well, no, I did. I, I, for one month, I had a car before the engine blew up. And, and, uh, and, and it was given to me. And I didn't have a car the whole three years I was here. You know, uh, I, 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 I didn't have any money either. Right? You know, you say, well, you had a car. You know, I worked for the school and got there. I remember when my wife and I were going out, you know, uh, my senior year, and I, I can remember I, it used to cost a nickel for a stamp, right? And we used to, I used to write her a letter almost every day, every other day, and she was at another school. And, uh, and I, I uh, this was when romance was really alive. You know, forget an email, right? What's romantic about an email? It costs you nothing. But I used to have to, I used to have to, I used to have to pray for my nickel stamp. I can remember one time in particular uh, walking in front of what now is admissions and looking down and seeing a nickel on the ground, you know, to get, the, get my stamp to mail my letter to my girlfriend, you know. You're missing out on these adventures, right? You're not having these kind of experiences, right? Because you've got it all under control, right? You've got everything in its place. You've got everything going, right? But he says these unsurrendered desires, they, uh, they mess things up. I remember when I used to work with um, with uh, single adults uh, when we uh, when I founded the Mobilize to Serve ministry, we would have conferences for single people all over the place. There was this gal in Syracuse who was actually leading a large singles group in Syracuse. Very nice gal. Um, I connected with her, and I so I wanted to use her as a speaker at one of our events, and we had set up the date for the event, and so I was calling to connect with her again prior to the event and I called the church and I said uh, could I speak to so-and-so and the person got real quiet and they said well let me let me refer you to the pastor you know and so I get the pastor and the pastor says well they're not going to church here anymore and I said well why is that 
And they said uh, she found some guy. He's a non-Christian guy, and she just uh, she just went crazy. He said she she it was like it was like every other value in her life went out the window. She said this guy was better to her than any Christian had ever been, and and she wanted to have a relationship with him, and you know that was that. I remember I hung up the phone and I was like shocked because this gal had been so used to the Lord and was so terrific and. And I remember I prayed about it. I, I spent some time before the Lord and just prayed about it. And the Lord gave me this picture. Uh, it was almost like a dream. It was a resting when it happened. This picture, and it was her, and she was having a difficult time, and she went into this room, and in this room was this little furry creature. And she sat down, and the little thing got up into her lap, and she started petting the little furry creature, and she, she started talking to it, and she said, It's okay. Someday I'll be married. Someday the right person will come. Everything will work out. It's okay. And she just held that little thing and just comforted herself with that little thing. And then she left the room, went out and stuff. And then an opportunity came for her to get her unsurrendered desire, to get a relationship with somebody. And I saw in the picture that little furry creature was suddenly transformed into a raging monster. What had been seemingly an innocent little unsurrendered thing was suddenly transformed into a raging monster, and she basically threw out every relationship she had, every connection she had, every she just threw it all out to pursue that relationship. The story is interesting to me because it was probably a decade later most of that decade I had spent speaking to singles and traveling and ministering and stuff like that. And, and it was probably a decade later I was speaking at a conference and at the end of the conference she came up to me in the conference and uh, she looked at me and she said, uh, she said, I'm so sorry. She said, I don't know what happened to me. I knew what had happened. An unsurrendered desire that had just gone wild in her life. She hadn't dealt with it. And, uh, and she, she told me how the relationship had ended and all the destruction and everything that had occurred. And all, these, all this stuff, all there, like a landmine in her life because she had something in her life that she had not put at the feet of Jesus. She hadn't really yielded it. She hadn't really given it over. And, uh, you know, unsurrendered desires for pleasure. You know, I've known men who... Maybe, you know, they're married and, and maybe their wife was going through something physically or maybe, she, maybe it was even emotionally. She was depressed or this kind of thing. And their sexual relationship took a downturn in their marriage. And somehow some guys would take that and they would say, okay, if I'm not getting satisfied in marriage, that gives me a free pass. I can go get satisfied someplace else where I want to get satisfied. Go, go, go find somebody that will, that will satisfy me. There was no faithfulness to their promise, no standing by what they had committed to. No, 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 there was an unsurrender. Their pleasure was premier. It was first in order. And it didn't matter if their spouse happened to be sick or a problem. Or if their pleasure wasn't being met, they, they, they felt justified to do whatever they wanted to do. It was an unsurrendered pleasure, desire for pleasure. It's, it can happen in just so many different ways. Okay, number two in your notes. Unhealthy conflict 
flows from undersurrendered desires which flow from idolatry. Okay, so let's see what James is going on to say here. Verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Now, let's just talk about this idea of friendship with the world. When he says friendship with the world, he's not talking about lost people. He's not talking about friendship with people who don't know Christ. When he talks about friendship with the world, he's talking about these three P's, right? Power, control, and pleasure, and and, uh, these things. This is the the unsurrendered desires that he's talking about. He says this is the the friendship with the world. He he says, uh, um, you adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Look at that, verse 5. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. God is a jealous God, and he deeply desires relationship with us. And when our hearts are drawn after other things, power, pleasure, possessions, God feels like we are cheating on him. That's why he calls us an adulteress. As a matter of fact, often you will see the word adultery used interchangeably with the idea of idolatry, right? James calls us adulteresses. What is adultery, okay? When I draw from another... What I should only be drawing from my wife, that is adultery. When I get from somebody else, what I should only be getting from my wife, that is adultery. What is idolatry? Idolatry is drawing from another source what we should be getting from God. If I draw from my pleasures what I should be getting from God, if I draw from the need to be in control from what what I should be getting from God, if I draw from my possessions, whoa, did you check it out? You know, I got a new shirt, you know. When I draw from my possessions what I should be getting from God, that is adultery or idolatry. When I try to have both my wife and another woman at the same time, that's adultery. And God is saying when you draw the satisfaction of life primarily from power, pleasure, or possessions, you're cheating on me. When you try to have me and the world at the same time, you're cheating on me. Imagine me saying to my wife, you're my best friend, and so is this other woman. Right? She wouldn't take it. You know what? God doesn't take it either. When you say to him, you're my best friend, but... I've got to stay in control. Well, you're my best friend, but I've got to have these pleasures in my life. You're my best friend, but I want these possessions in my life. He he, he says that's adultery. You know, God says if you're friends with the world, you're you're his enemy. He's not a dysfunctional lover. You know, you hear about people who are abusive, people who have been abused and things where, where, you know, the guy goes out, and I've seen this as a pastor counseling, the guy goes out, commits adultery, comes back, and his wife is willing to take him back. Not one, I'm not talking about where there's been an authentic uh, um, uh, um, repentance. 
I'm talking about she, she, I don't know whether she thinks to herself, maybe I'm, I'm not worth it, or maybe there's problems with me, or maybe what's wrong. But she's dysfunctional in her thinking, and so she will allow an adulterous man to share the bed with her. And, and, and God, God looks at us and he says, no, I'm not doing that. I got more respect for myself than that. I'm not going to do that kind of thing. Number three, humility restores our relationship with God, which leads to surrendered desires, open the door to healthy relationships. This is what he says, starting with verse 6. We're looking at this James 4, 1 through 10. We're looking at 6 now. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is a pro, opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Look what he says now. What do you have to do to become humble? Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, when he says that, he say, you're double-minded because your heart is divided. You have two loves. He says, purify your heart so you only have one love. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourself, he says. So how do I humble myself? I submit to God. Submit is a military term. It means to line up underneath. When I submit to God, it means I surrender my independence, my me-first attitude. Um, when I'm submitted to the military commander, it means the will of the commander comes first. Not my will, but his will must be done. That's what it means to submit. You know, we, we're working with a student, you know, and we're, we're saying to them, we're saying to them, no, you can't do that. You know, you, you violated some things here, and so we're going to, we, we need to give you some restrictions here. Will you live with these restrictions for a season? Will you, will you do that? Will you submit to that? See? Will you lay down your independence, your will, your desire, your way, your... You know, when you hear about it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it comes as, you know, can you believe that, that they would come in and take away our freedom and do blah, 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 and they just went and he, they're so demanding. You know, come on, I know. Right? This is... See, so what does it mean to submit? It means you, you humble yourself. You, when you submit, you look and you say, hey, wow, I screwed up. And you, you know what? I, I'm willing to put my thinking and my control and my will under godly authority in this situation, in this, uh, in this circumstance to deal with it. Okay? How about the number two? Resist the devil. We have to destroy, or he wants to destroy, the devil wants to destroy every relationship you have, parent, children, spouse, friends. And so his, his primary tool for doing this is conflict caused by unsurrendered desires and your, your basically weak relationship with God. 
And so this is what he'll use on you when you go home for the break to cause conflict between brothers and sisters and you, to cause conflict between you and your parents. He'll use these unsurrendered desires. You know, it's funny sometimes, and I, I know this from my own experience as a student here, when I was at school, I was willing to surrender. But when I went home, it was like all my old will and desire for control and to be in charge reasserted itself in my home. Because I'd look at my mother and it would be, and instead of hearing God's word, obey your parents, you know, I would look at my mother and say, well, she's hardly, you know, she's not even a Christian. Uh, you know, I, I don't need to submit to her. See? And conflict would result. Problems would develop until I learned how to humble myself. Okay, number three. Draw near to God. This is what we need to do. So we need to, we need to submit to God, we need to resist the devil, and we need to draw near to God. How do you draw near to God? You know, drawing near to God is not a hard, is not a hard process. Let me tell you some key words. I'll give you six key words that will help you draw near to God. First of all, when you worship, that's loving God, right? When you do acts of service, loving God by serving others. These are all different ways that will draw you near to God. When you do outreach, loving God by loving lost people. When you do fellowship, loving God by loving his people. When you discipleship, loving God by becoming more like him. And, and when, you do, when, when you experience his power, loving God by experiencing his presence. These are ways that you draw near to God. It's really not complicated. And, and uh, the more time I spend with God, the better I do with people. I won't have as much when I'm, because I'm dealt with, I'm surrendered. You know, he, he says to us, get serious about your right relationships. You know, cleanse your hands, anything evil you've done. Purify your heart, any poor attitude you've had. Weep and mourn, take it seriously. Make restitution, ask forgiveness, express your regret. Don't pray for God to humble you. Listen to this now. Some of you have done that. You, oh, Lord, I, you know, if there's something wrong, uh, you know, you just humble me. You just deal with me. God doesn't say, I'm going to humble you. He says, humble yourself. You make a decision to say, I'm going to submit myself. You make a decision and say, I'm going to give up my way. You make a decision and say, I'm going to cleanse my hands. You make a decision and say, I'm going to examine my heart. Humble yourself. Get low before God. Get low before other people. Submit yourself. Humble yourself, he says. And then you're not going to have to worry about a whole lot of this conflict that happens. Because the conflict happens because we have unsurrendered issues around power and control. We have unsurrendered issues around uh, possessions. We have unsurrendered issues on these, these things that we're talking about. This, when we are unsurrendered, that's what creates this, these conflicts, these issues. So let's just bow our hearts right now. Can we do that? Just bow your heart before the Lord. Is there something unsurrendered in you is it like a time bomb is it like a like a landmine waiting to go off and the truth is you know you've stayed off of everybody's radar this year 
you know, as far as school goes, you've kept your head down, done your work, everything else. But you know something? That doesn't mean one little bit that you have surrendered. Surrender is a decision that you make to lay down your will, to lay down your pleasures, to lay down your possessions, to say it, it doesn't belong to me, it all belongs to God. I'm putting it in his hands. No one can take it from me because I don't own it. It belongs to God. Even unsurrendered desires, like the desire to get married, came back and ate up that woman's life. And is there, is there, have you come to the place where you have surrendered, where you've said to God, God, I give you permission. If a season of singleness is what you need from me, I give you permission. Keep me focused in your way and your purposes. Unsurrendered desire. Where you're, you're pressing into even sexual things that you don't even feel good about yourself. It's not like you're crazy about the person. You just found somebody that will play your game with you. It's unsurrendered. It's like a time bomb waiting to go off. It's like a, it's like a landmine waiting for somebody to step on it and touch it in some way. And then all this rage and conflict rises up out of you. That's what James is telling us. He says, you've got to deal with this stuff. If you, if you want to be growing, you've got to humble yourself. You've got to repent. Weep and mourn, he says. He says, get serious. But don't allow this stuff to be hidden in your life, secretly holding out for you. Lord, I just ask you by your Holy Spirit, just move across this room.